NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. Israel says it's preparing to march into Gaza very soon. We have the latest. Lots of people are waiting here in front of the Palestinian gate. They all are waiting to get out of here, but the Palestinians are not here to open the gate. And we hear from the West Bank, where Palestinians are facing rising tensions and worries about the safety of family and friends in Gaza. Plus, California now has an ebony alert. It's meant to draw attention to missing African-Americans in the state. We talked to the lawmaker behind it. It's Sunday, October 15th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden is condemning the deadly attack carried out a week ago by the Palestinian militant group Hamas. A week ago, we saw hate manifest in another way in the worst massacre of Jewish people since the Holocaust. More than 1,300 innocent lives lost in Israel, including at least 27 Americans. Children and grandparents alike kidnapped, held hostage by Hamas. Biden spoke last night at a human rights campaign dinner in Washington, blaming Hamas for the crisis playing out in Gaza, where food and water are running low as Palestinian civilians flee northern Gaza ahead of an expected ground offensive by the Israeli military. In Ramallah, in the occupied West Bank, the head of the Palestinian National Initiative, Mustafa Barghouti, told the BBC that Israel's decision to cut off water and electricity to Gaza has been a fatal one. Children who are in incubators will die or have died because there is no electricity. Israel is fighting not Hamas. Israel is fighting all the Palestinian people. Israel is attacking all the civilians in Gaza. Medics in Gaza are warning of packed hospitals that are running low on fuel and basic supplies. China is sending its Middle East envoy to the region in the coming days to promote peace talks, as NPR's John Ruich reports. Special Envoy Jai Jun says he's going to the Middle East to make positive efforts to cool down the situation. China has backed a two-state solution and says the failure to reach one is the root cause of the conflict. It's unclear exactly what Beijing can do to help bring an end to the fighting, though. China's stance on the issue has irked Israel, once a close friend. The Israeli foreign ministry voiced deep disappointment this week for China's failure to condemn Hamas in its official statements. China says it's concerned by the escalation of tensions and violence and saddened by civilian casualties. But it says, quote, injustice to Palestine has dragged on for over half a century and the suffering must not continue. John Ruich, NPR News. Back in Washington, after nearly two weeks of deadlock, House Republicans remain without a speaker. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan holds the party's nomination, but it's unclear if he can win the gavel, as NPR's Susan Davis reports. In a secret ballot election, 55 Republicans said they were still not ready to support Jordan on the House floor. A Republican speaker nominee can only lose four votes and still be elected speaker. Democrats will vote for their leader, Hakeem Jeffries of New York. Jordan sent lawmakers home for the weekend and said they would regroup on Monday. A floor vote is possible on Tuesday, but even Jordan's closest allies say he's unlikely to win it on the first ballot. Many Republicans were hoping to do so as a show of unity following the removal of former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But any Republican nominee will likely need multiple ballots to win enough support to become Speaker. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. And you're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. As Israel prepares for a ground invasion of the Gaza Strip, hundreds of people held a pro-Palestinian rally yesterday at Harvard Yard. They expressed anger over what they called the genocide and displacement of Palestinians. Speakers at the event called for a ceasefire, for an end to U.S. support of Israel, and for Harvard President Claudine Gay to condemn anti-Palestinian rhetoric. Several Harvard student groups sparked controversy last week when they released a statement that seemed to justify Hamas's surprise attack on Israel that killed more than 1,300 people. The groups later said their statement focused on their beliefs about the root cause of the deadly attack and did not endorse Hamas's violence. A Boston-based public defender group is suing the state police. The Committee for Public Counsel Services says state police have delayed responding to or have ignored public records requests for as long as two years. The law requires agencies to respond to these requests within 10 business days. Universal Hub reports that the public defenders are seeking information on civil lawsuits and criminal cases involving state troopers. WBUR has reached out to the state police for comment. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's administration will soon grant tax breaks to developers and landlords who want to convert office buildings into housing. The Boston Business Journal reports the program is expected to formally open tomorrow. The Boston Planning and Development Agency is offering chosen projects up to a 75 percent tax break on property taxes over 29 years for the conversions. Recipients must pull a building permit and begin construction by October 31st, 2025. This afternoon, the Patriots are in Las Vegas against the Raiders. Last night, the Bruins beat the Predators 3-2 and the Revs lost to Nashville 3-2. It's 50 degrees in Boston with clouds around today. Highs reaching the low 60s, lows in the upper 40s overnight tomorrow and Tuesday. A chance of showers and highs both days around 60 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The Israeli army says it's preparing for a ground invasion of the Gaza Strip after conducting limited raids in search of intelligence and to retrieve bodies of slain Israeli hostages. There were more rockets and missiles into southern Israel from Gaza yesterday. In Gaza, the Palestinian Health Ministry says Saturday was the deadliest day of the war so far, with more than 300 dead, bringing the total number of Palestinians Palestinian fatalities to more than 2,300 people. The Israeli military said today that 286 soldiers have been killed since the war began more than a week ago, and the death toll from the initial Hamas assault stands at some 1,300 people. NPR's Peter Kenyon is following the events from Jerusalem and joins us now. Hi, Peter. Hi, Aisha. 
What do we know about this planned Israeli incursion into Gaza? Into Gaza? Well, at this point, we still don't know when it will happen, and that's quite deliberate on Israel's part. Uh, IDF spokespersons have made it clear that the timing of any incursion is a tactical decision. It won't be made public in advance. We'll know it when it happens. Uh, there are reasons to believe it could be soon. The biggest sign is the massing of troops closer to the border with Gaza. Another indication is the order for more Palestinians in the northern Gaza Strip. That's more than a million people to immediately go south. That's a strong signal that Gaza City in the north of the Strip could be an early focal point of an incursion. Israeli officials insist they're doing everything possible to minimize civilian casualties. And, and we know that Palestinians are trying to comply with that order, but as you said, you know, this is like nearly a, a million people. How is that going? Well, it is very difficult for many families. Uh, they had little or no time to prepare supplies, food, etc. A lack of water seems to be a crucial problem for those who took to the road, along with shortages of food and shelter. Those with friends or family to the south rushed to stay with them, while other displaced families are squeezing into overcrowded schools and hospitals. And officials in Gaza say those hospitals will soon run out of supplies, saying thousands could die. And while all those thousands are trying to flee, that still leaves many more staying in the north. And some northern hospitals that were ordered to evacuate are simply saying, no, we can't. We can't move these patients safely under these conditions. And even if we could, there's nowhere to bring them that's safe and has the capacity to care for them. Israel, meanwhile, is claiming battlefield success. But, but what does that mean? Well, the IDF and the Shin Bet, the Israeli intelligence service, are saying they assassinated the Hamas commander who led deadly raids in two communities. The announcement says Bilal al-Qadra, commander of Hamas special forces in South Han Yunus, has been killed. Israel holds him responsible for attacks during the Hamas assault on southern Israel at the Nirim and Nir Oz kibbutzes. Yesterday, IDF international spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht left no doubt that targeting the Hamas leaders responsible for the attack is among Israel's top priorities. Uh, now, separately, Israel is denying claims that one of its airstrikes hit a convoy in Gaza that killed more than 70 people. Uh, they are also looking into the death of a Reuters cameraman and the wounding of other journalists near the Lebanese border. Uh, the U.S. has promised to make sure Israel can defend itself, and now we hear another group of warships is heading to the region. I is that right? Yes. Uh, Washington is sending a second carrier strike group to the eastern Mediterranean and is sending Air Force fighter jets to the region as well. Uh, that's according to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Uh, he was here in Israel this weekend. The Pentagon says the ships are not joining the fighting in Israel, but they're there to deter Iran and its proxies in the region from attempting to widen the conflict. Okay, in about 30 seconds we have left. What about foreigners who want to leave Israel? Well, the Rafah crossing didn't open Saturday. That's to Egypt. Many people waited for hours. Uh, NPR contacted resident Hanin Okal yesterday, who was stuck at the gate. Lots of people are waiting here in front of the Palestinian gate. They all are waiting to get out of here, but the Palestinians are not here to open the gate. And the Egyptians uh, are not there yet, too, from the Egyptian side. So we're all waiting what's going to happen. Nobody has any information, any update. And separately, the U.S. Embassy is telling Americans here that government-arranged transport will be leaving from Haifa by sea, bound for Cyprus. Once there, they may be on their own for further travel. That's NPR's Peter Kenyon in Jerusalem. Peter, thank you so much. Thanks, Aisha.
The fighting between Israel and Hamas, which operates in Gaza, is increasing tension and violence roughly 60 miles away in another Palestinian territory, the West Bank. Palestinian officials say since last week, Israeli troops have killed several dozen people there in the landlocked territory Israel has occupied for 56 years. This follows more than a year of stepped-up military raids, airstrikes, and fatal attacks and counterattacks between Israeli settlers and Palestinians. To understand more about how Palestinians in the West Bank are experiencing this moment, we turn now to Yara Hawari. She's a senior analyst of Al Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network, and she lives in Jerusalem. She tells us many exits to West Bank towns and villages have been closed, greatly limiting the population's movement. Just to give you context, the West Bank is under Israeli military occupation, which means that the Israeli army has control over the whole area. And it's created this uh, military infrastructure that allows them easily to close down Palestinian towns and villages by barricading roads, um, by blocking entrances and exits. In addition to these physical barriers, there's also a lot of fear because Israeli settlers who illegally reside in the West Bank have been given more arms, in part because so much of the Israeli army is being diverted to the south. And these Israeli settlers are, are going on rampages and shooting Palestinians. So, you know, movement across the West Bank is already in the best of times is already severely limited, but now there's so much fear and tension. It really has come to a standstill. And, and so what, what has that mean when you say it's come to a standstill? Well, a lot of uh, businesses and workplaces have, have closed and people are not going uh, into work. And a lot of the schools have closed as well out of fear um, of the very unsafe reality that has been created. You know, it is fear, but it's a fear that's very much grounded in, in the reality of life under military occupation. And I have to say, you know, over the last week, Palestinians in the West Bank who are prevented from uh, seeing people in Gaza physically. You know, we've been glued to to our TV screens, um, to our laptop screens, just waiting for, for news from friends and from people that we know. Um, so it's been a really difficult atmosphere, even though we are not going through near, you know, the same uh, level of violence that Palestinians in Gaza are going through. The fear and the tension and the escalation of violence is really palpable. What are you hearing from Palestinians in the West Bank about the Hamas attack? What are the views that you're hearing? I mean, I think you know most Palestinians understand this in the context that the Western media is not understanding it. This is as a result of decades of military occupation, but particularly in Gaza, um, 16 years of a brutal military siege. Palestinians in Gaza live in an open-air prison. They're basically held hostage in this tiny piece of land. The land, sea and air borders are all tightly controlled by the Israeli regime. Hardly anyone goes in or out. All, all the goods and electricity is severely restricted. And this was before even last Saturday. This has been going on for 16 years. And it's difficult, I think, for us in the West Bank for Palestinians in the West Bank to comprehend that kind of reality. Palestinians in the West Bank live under a military occupation, um, which is already, you know, incredibly brutal and harsh, but the siege in Gaza is on another level. And so I think, you know, Palestinians are understanding it through that light. They are deeply fearful about what is about to come. You know, I think Palestinians see this very much as an attempt to ethnically cleanse Gaza of the Palestinian population. Um, one of the big talking points at the moment 
um, is this facilitation of a humanitarian corridor in Gaza into Egypt if the Egyptian regime agrees. And there's a real fear that this basically will be a permanent exile. And Palestinians, not just in Gaza, but in the West Bank and across the rest of Palestine, are perpetually frightened of being kicked out of their homes, of being permanently exiled, because this is what has, you know, something that has been ongoing for so long. When you when you talk about the Israeli response um, to the Hamas attack, is there any military response to that attack that you feel would be acceptable? The response to what happened on Saturday has to be the end of the occupation. I mean, it's it's unbelievable that that isn't even a talking point for most of uh, the mainstream media outlets and for the for, for politicians. Palestinians are not inherently bloodthirsty people. We are not human animals, as one Israeli politician described us. We are people that want to live free and in dignity. What happened on Saturday was bred of the occupation. What do you think this current conflict means for the future of Palestinians overall? So I think it doesn't look good, but I do think that there are opportunities um, for us to really think about what solidarity looks like, to rethink what it means uh, for a regime that is internationally supported and given not just diplomatic support, but material support to keep an entire people hostage what that means for the rest of the world. What does it mean for the international legal regime uh, when there is a, a country that is systematically violating international law and being allowed to do so and actually its violations of international law are being facilitated by powers such as the US and the EU. So I think this moment offers some serious uh, reflection on where we are in the world. That's Yara Hawari, senior analyst of Al Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network, speaking to us from Jerusalem. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. And coming up later this hour, you'll take a close look at Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. That and much more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. It is 50 degrees in Boston with highs today reaching the low 60s. Tomorrow, a chance of showers, a high around 60 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, advancing together by using collaboration to drive new discoveries. More at umassmed.edu together. Celebrity Series with Grupo Corpo, Brazilian Contemporary Dance, at the Box Center Schubert Theater, October 28th and 29th, celebrityseries.org. And Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. 
President Biden is condemning the deadly attack carried out a week ago by the Palestinian militant group Hamas. He spoke last night in Washington after urging Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza. Israel is preparing for a widely expected ground offensive. In Dallas, three people were injured last night in a shooting that prompted authorities to evacuate the State Fair of Texas. A suspect is in custody. In a Major League Baseball, the best of seven American League Championship Series between the Houston Astros and the Texas Rangers gets underway tonight. The National League Series starts tomorrow night. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. We're watching events in Israel and Gaza this Sunday morning as violence continues there, now a week after Hamas launched its surprising and brutal attacks in southern Israel. More on that throughout the program today. Now to Capitol Hill and the vacancy in the in the House speakership. NPR's Franco Ordonez is watching that story for us this morning, and he joins us now. Good morning, Franco. Good morning, Aisha. So are House Republicans any closer to finding a speaker? Yeah, I mean, it's a really tough question to answer. I mean, the Republicans, they did nominate Representative Jim Jordan after Steve Scalise dropped out, but that's because Scalise didn't get enough support, and Jordan appears to have the same problem. He's going to need 217 votes to get elected, and they did an internal vote, and it shows that he's more than 50 short so far. I mean, there is some kind of floor vote expected in the coming week, and there's some push by Jordan's backers who think putting it on the floor will make it get harder to oppose him, especially since former President Trump has thrown his support behind Jordan. But Jordan is really facing some stiff resistance from his own party, and he's really not going to be able to look to Democrats who are pretty united against him. You say that Democrats are sticking together, but you know, what about this this chatter about some kind of bipartisan compromise? Is, is that a fever dream? <laughs> I mean, there is a lot of chatter about needing a bipartisan path, but it is really hard to imagine that happening, considering the positions that both sides are taking in the last couple of days. I mean, on Friday, Democratic leaders, they took to the Capitol steps in this big show of unity, and they went on the attack. I mean, calling Jordan an extremist, an insurrectionist, and an election denier. I mean, it really appears to be an example of how the Democrats are gearing up for 2024 and painting the party as extremists with Jordan at the top. And yes, they talk about compromise, but they say Republicans need to bring it forward. And that doesn't appear to be happening. Uh, Does not having a speaker have an effect on the conflict in Israel in in terms of aid or or cooperation or, or anything else? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, in so many ways, the House is paralyzed. No votes can happen. You know, lawmakers on both sides want to show their support for Israel, some even proposing a bipartisan resolution, possibly moving some funds to help support Israel. But that can't happen. And it's a really intense moment in the conflict as we've just been listening. You know, it's entering this new phase with, you know, anticipation of ground operations. President Biden has pledged his full support behind Israel, but he's also now expressing some concern about the risk to civilians in Gaza. Here he is actually in Philadelphia. Can't lose sight of the fact that the overwhelming majority of Palestinians had nothing to do with Hamas and Hamas's appalling attacks. You know, Peter Kenyon was just telling you about the conditions on the ground. Biden's team certainly seems to be watching and listening to concerns from the United Nations and other humanitarian organizations who are really worried about what's ahead. Uh, the fight between Israel and Hamas has become part of the presidential race here in the U.S. Donald Trump made some uh, eyebrow-raising eyebrow comments uh, about it. Yeah, very eyebrow raising. I mean, he really caught a lot of attention when he criticized Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and referred to Hezbollah as very smart. Hezbollah, of course, is the Lebanese militant group that's backed by Iran. You know, in many ways, some, you know, Trump's comments about Netanyahu were surprising considering how close the two leaders were. But it also shows how quickly relationships can sour with Trump, who felt slighted by Netanyahu over some of his support for Biden. And our listeners obviously know it's not new to hear Trump complimenting a controversial figure. You know, Trump referred to Russian President Vladimir Putin as a genius and very savvy after their uh, invasion of Ukraine. And the pushback, though, has been very strong, especially about Netanyahu. And it appears Trump seems to be walking it back just a bit. He posted on social media that he stands with Israel and he stands with Netanyahu. That's NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Franco, thank you. Thanks, Aisha. And you can find more news and context about the war in Israel at npr.org slash Mideast updates. The U.S. government claims disgraced crypto mogul Sam Bankman-Fried committed one of the largest financial frauds in history, and they're making that case to a jury in New York. In the trial's second week, the government's star witness testified. NPR's David Gura has been in the courtroom and joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hey, Aisha. All right. So catch us up on the trial. What's going on? So this hinges on one key question, and that is, did Sam Bankman-Fried deliberately defraud his customers by misusing billions of dollars of customer money? And at the heart of this case are two companies Bankman-Fried started, Alameda Research, which was a crypto trading firm, and FTX, this big cryptocurrency exchange that everyone has probably heard of by now. So far, we've heard from customers, from investors, from lenders who have testified about losses they suffered when Bankman-Fried's crypto empire went bust. But the most compelling testimony so far has been from members of Bankman-Fried's inner circle. So, so who's in that group and, and, and what have they said? Yes, yeah, so these are former executives, but also former friends of Sam Bankman-Fried's from college at MIT, from math camp in high school. And they've all turned on him. They've all pleaded guilty to criminal charges, and they're cooperating with the U.S. government. They're accusing Bankman-Fried of being the mastermind of what happened. By far the most explosive testimony was Caroline Ellison's. She ran Bankman-Fried's crypto trading firm, but 
adding to the intrigue and the drama here, Aisha, is that Ellison is also Bankman-Fried's ex-girlfriend. Okay, so, I mean, what does she have to say? (laughs) Well, these two met when Caroline Ellison was an intern on Wall Street, and just a few years later, when she was in her mid-20s, Ellison became the CEO of Sam Bankman-Fried's investment firm. Ellison told the court Bankman-Fried directed her to commit these crimes. She said he instructed her to take billions of dollars in cash and cryptocurrency from FTX customers, and he also told her to manipulate balance sheets, key financial statements. Ellison talked about personal diary entries she wrote, in which she detailed difficulties in her relationship with Bankman-Fried, both personal and professional. And she said he put a lot of thought and effort into cultivating his persona. He thought looking disheveled, which he did, was good for business. And she told a pretty revealing anecdote about that. Ellison said he stopped driving a luxury car because he didn't think the optics looked good, so he started driving a Toyota Corolla to his $35 million penthouse apartment in the Bahamas. This sounds pretty bad, though. Like, like, how is the defense team reacting? It's clear they're trying to portray Sam Bankman-Fried as this kind of entrepreneurial brainiac who got in over his head. He couldn't keep up with how fast his crypto businesses were growing, and he had no intention of committing any crimes. They've emphasized how big FTX grew in really just a matter of three years into a multi-billion dollar company. And they've also tried to make the case that Bankman-Fried put a lot of trust in his deputies, including Caroline Ellison. He was traveling all the time. He was meeting with lawmakers and regulators and celebrities, not to mention wealthy investors. And he just couldn't keep tabs on everything. So do we have any clues about how the case is going overall? It seems the defense team has had a tough go of it so far. The judge has admonished Sam Bankman-Fried's lawyers over and over again, and he's grown visibly impatient with objections and efforts to retread ground that's been covered. And this goes back to the very beginning, before the trial. Bankman-Fried's attorneys really struck out on requests to exclude evidence and witness testimony. And, of course, the judge decided to revoke Bankman-Fried's bail just a few weeks before this trial began. So uh, what's ahead? The big question is, will Sam Bankman-Fried testify? You know, it's his right to do that, even if his lawyers advise him against it, which may be a challenge for his lawyers, according to former prosecutor Tarek Hello. Think about SBF. How often in his life has anyone told him, no, you can't do that? This is someone who, as soon as he was placed under house arrest, began trying to defend himself in the court of public opinion. Bankman-Fried started an email newsletter. He tweeted. He made around a thousand phone calls to journalists, according to prosecutors. From the moment his companies collapsed, Bankman-Fried has argued he didn't do anything wrong, and he is hoping the jury is going to believe him. NPR's David Gura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This week, Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law a new alert system to help find missing Black persons in California. It's a shame that we need a separate alert, but we have been ignored when we disappear. Stephen Bradford is the state senator behind the new alert system. He says that nationally, Black people disappear at a disproportionately high rate. When you only make up 13% of the population, but almost 40% of those individuals who come up missing on a regular basis, but you rarely see any kind of media attention on that or any type of law enforcement uh, resources committed to that, it required this measure. When I spoke to Senator Bradford this week, he explained how the Ebony Alert will work and what makes it different from other types of alerts. 
Now, Amber Alert only deals with individuals 17 years and younger who come up missing. With the Ebony Alert, it will be from 12 to 25. It will also concentrate on individuals who might have some kind of physical or mental challenges. Also, individuals who are suspected of being sex trafficked or disappeared under a suspicious reasons. So we see young women over 18 who disappear and are sex trafficked often, but again, no resources to finding them. So how will it work? Like who will put out an ebony alert that this person is missing? Um, law enforcement, the same way it happens now with the Amber Alert. And then we go through the highway patrol. We'll use our electronic billboards on the highways to provide that information. And also, again, uh, reach out to our media outlets to make sure that they broadcast that information as well. Is there a reason why you cut it off at the age of 25? I, we hear so many cases, especially of like missing Black women. Um, we've heard that there's that case of Kiara Coles who disappeared in the Chicago area at the age of 26. That would be a year above the cutoff. She was three months pregnant and, and still is missing five years later. Yes, I wish it wasn't an age restriction on this, but uh, that's part of what you have to do as far as compromise when you're working on legislation like this. You know, there is a lot of talk about the misclassification of missing Black people as runaways and how that's a big problem. If this is going through the, the, the police department, will the Ebony Alert rectify that? Are, are you confident that the police will send out these alerts and not just say that this person is just a runaway? We're hopeful. I mean, and that's what we're going to work with law enforcement to make sure that they're aware of this. Many times law enforcement do list African-American kids as runaways quicker than you'll ever see uh, Caucasian kids being listed as runaways. They're always listed as abducted or missing, where we're kind of like viewed as far more mature. and know they left of their own volition or their own free will. And that's very rarely the case. Are you concerned that the same forces of racism that have led to less attention on these cases in general could affect these alerts and and an ebony alert could be seen as less important than an amber alert in some people's eyes? Uh, That is concerning. We know America and we know their biases when it comes to people of color and uh, how we are always discounted or ignored. So it's a shame that we need legislation like this. Uh, I'm hoping they don't look at this and say, oh, it's Amber Alert and we're going to deprioritize it. I'm, I'm just hoping people will come around and understand Black folks missing are just as cared for and loved as anyone else. And and making them a priority uh, shouldn't be any different than finding anyone else in this country. Is there, have there been any um, concerns or criticism that, well, does every demographic have its, should have its own alert system? Like, okay, this is for black people. Should there be one for other ethnic groups or, and, you know, certainly you have, um, you know, native women and children often go missing. Uh, That's a big issue. You know, why just for African-Americans? Well, we do have a feather alert for our indigenous people here in California. That was signed last year into law. If the data had supported that Asians were disappearing and no one would be looking for it, I'm pretty sure it would justify uh, moving in that direction. I mean, we have a silver alert again for our seniors, and we do have a feather alert. Matter of fact, we have a blue alert for missing police officers. And, and no one ever raised the issue about that. So, again, when it comes to trying to level the playing field and provide resources for African-Americans, it's always, you know, why this is necessary. It's necessary because of this nation's history. 
That's Stephen Bradford, a state senator in California. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Vermont has joined the growing list of states hoping to retain young people by paying their student loans. The program launched this year will give recent graduates of Vermont colleges up to $5,000 if they stay and work in the state for two years. Lawmakers hope the initiative will keep more young people in Vermont. From the Heckinger Report in Vermont Public, Liam Elder Connors reports. A couple of months ago, Mohammed Dini was ready to leave Vermont. The 23-year-old had graduated from Champlain College in Burlington. He thought he'd like to move somewhere warmer and bigger, like Charlotte, North Carolina, or Atlanta. I feel like I'm more of a bigger city person, with more, much more diversity. I like having options on what to do throughout the daily life, not just having to rely on hiking and swimming. Dini hoped that President Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness plan would cancel out his $20,000 of debt. But when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Biden's plan this summer, Dini knew he'd need to do something different. That's when he heard Vermont would pay him up to $5,000 if he stayed and worked. Dini, who studied business administration and accounting, got a job at a brokerage firm outside Burlington. He applied to the loan program and was accepted. It's better than zero. You know, it's better than me paying $5,000 out of pocket. And I'm not required to do anything but stay in the state, which is like bare minimum. Dinny isn't the only recent grad who stayed thanks to this new program. Mimi Duong graduated this year from the University of Vermont with a degree in public communications and nearly $30,000 of debt. Duong, who grew up in Vermont, says she considered leaving the state to pursue higher paying jobs, but an opportunity to work in her field plus the loan repayment program convinced her to stay. And when I got the email saying that I received it, I, I don't, I didn't, my, my world like stopped. So I'm like, wow, I get to stay here, work, and also have some of my loans paid back. Almost every state in the country has some kind of student loan forgiveness program. Most are focused on specific professions, like healthcare or teaching. Only two states, Vermont and Maine, offer loan repayment programs to recent graduates who work in any field. Both states have some of the oldest populations in the country. Maine lawmakers expanded the state's student loan repayment program last year. People can get $2,500 a year off their loans for up to a decade. Heather Johnson is Maine's Commissioner of Economic and Community Development. So the average student debt in Maine is about $33,000. And so we had to be significant in that equation. Nearly 14,000 people took advantage of Maine's program last year. In Vermont, the first-year numbers won't be that big. There's enough money for around 400 recent grads this year. St. Michael's College economics professor Patrick Walsh says that could still be significant, especially if the state keeps the program. He says enticing young people to stay could help address Vermont's aging population and bring more high-paying jobs to the state. That could really start to move the needle. It's kind of these cycles where... The skilled employers go where the skilled workers go. The skilled workers go where the skilled employers go. But it could be hard to keep people after they get their $5,000. Duong, the recent University of Vermont grad, isn't committed to staying. All the adults in Vermont tell me, hey, you should get out, like, at least, like, in your life, at least leave Vermont for a couple years and then come back if you want to. Um, I might take that advice, but we'll also see, like, you know, how deep my roots are um, in two years from now. Because I might end up just loving it here. That's exactly what state officials are hoping will happen. That after two years, people like Duong will realize that Vermont is where they want to stay. For NPR News, I'm Liam Elder Connors in Burlington, Vermont. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. An emailed bomb threat to a synagogue in Attleboro did not prevent the congregation from gathering yesterday. The Boston Globe reports that the neighboring Evangelical Covenant Church invited the congregants of Agudah Sahim to hold their Shabbat service in the church yesterday. A state police bomb squad searched the synagogue and its grounds for explosives and did not find any. In Boston, the Wu administration plans to start granting tax breaks to developers and landlords who want to convert office buildings into housing. The Boston Business Journal reports the program's expected to formally open tomorrow. The Boston Planning and Development Agency would offer chosen projects up to a 75 percent tax break on property taxes over 29 years for the conversions. It is 50 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today, highs in the low 60s, lows in the upper 40s overnight. Tomorrow and Tuesday, a chance of some showers and a high around 60 degrees. This is WBUR. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. Sunbug Solar, committed to being a partner in renewable energy, from consultation to installation. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. And Brookwood School, with Jessica Leahy, author of The Gift of Failure, speaking in the 4 to 14 speaker series on October 24th. Tickets at brookwood.edu. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hey, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So before we start, Will, I understand that there is a week-long puzzle championship starting this weekend, and uh, you're going to be there. Can, can you tell us about it? I'll be there. It's in Toronto. It runs Sunday to Sunday. And the first uh, three days are the World Sudoku Championship. And following that will be the World Puzzle Championship. And these are all language and culture neutral puzzles. So it doesn't matter where you're from, what language you speak, everyone can compete equally. There's more than 30 countries that are sending teams. And this was an event I founded in New York in 1992. Travels to a different country every year. Next year is going to be in China. And uh, after the championship, we plan to sell the puzzles digitally and in book form so everyone can try them. Will, would you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Andrew Chaikin of San Francisco. I said, think of a mammal 
an insect and a bird in that order, six, three, and four letters respectively, and I said, say them out loud and you'll name something often seen around this time of year. What is it? And the answer is a jack-o'-lantern, which phonetically is a jackal, ant, and either a turn or an urn, depending on which you prefer. Oh, okay. <laughs> we, well, well y'all got this one though, because we had almost 2,300 correct responses. And the winner this week is Ann Roos of Elgin, Illinois. Congratulations, Ann. Thank you. Hi, Aisha. Hi, Will. Hey there. So, Ann, how long have you been playing the puzzle? Not too long. Uh, my husband and I have been listening for a long time, but we've only been sending in answers for a few months, I think. Oh, wow. And this one, you had a lot of competition. How did you get this one? Uh, well, we realized that the three-letter insect, uh, there were the fewest options for that. So we kind of worked from there. Once I had a list of four-letter birds and started saying them phonetically together, I realized that ants in turn, if you start it with an L, could be lantern. And about two seconds after I said that, my husband said, jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> and we got it from there. <laughs> and what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? I like to read and garden and travel when I can. And it seems like my husband and I are always working on some sort of home improvement project. And are you ready to play? I am. All right. Take it away, Will. All right, Anne and Aisha, I'm going to give you some four-letter words. For each one, change either the first or last letter to name part of the body. For example, if I said boot, you would say foot, changing the first letter of boot to an F. And number one is chip, C-H-I-P. Chin. The chin is right. No hint needed. Number two is deck, D-E-C-K. Neck. Neck is it. Hank, H-A-N-K. Hand. Uh-huh. Here, H-E-A-R. Head. That's it. Jack, J-A-C-K. Back. Uh-huh. That was fast. New, K-N-E-W. Knee. Uh-huh. Mutt, M-U-T-T. Butt. That's it. Ship, S-H-I-P. Shin. That's it. Vape, V-A-P-E. Nape. That's it, the back of the neck. And uh, the last one has two answers, so you have to get them both. And the word is calm, C-A-L-M. Calf. That's it. And, and palm. And palm. Boy, good oh, job, Ann. Oh, yeah, you did good. You were so fast. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> like, you did an amazing job. How do you feel? I feel great. Yeah, yeah, you killed it. <laughs> <laughs> For playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Anne, what member station do you listen to? I'm a sustaining member of Chicago's NPR station, 91.5 WBEZ. Oh, love that. That's Ann Roos of Elgin, Illinois. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thanks, Aisha. Thanks, Will. Thank you. Okay, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from Mike Reese, who's a showrunner, writer, and producer for The Simpsons, among other things. Name a famous athlete, first and last names. Interchange the initials of those names. Then add an appliance. And the result, reading left to right, will name a fruit. What is it? So again, a famous athlete, first and last names, 
interchange the initials of those names, then add an appliance, and the result, reading left to right, will name a fruit. What fruit is it? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, October 19th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. Israel's Knesset has approved the power-sharing deal. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu struck with his political rival, Benny Gantz. Gantz, a centrist, now has powers akin to Netanyahu, who has been governing as head of a far-right coalition. Ruth Margalit is a journalist based in Tel Aviv who has been covering the Netanyahu administration. She's written for the New York Times and the New Yorker, and she joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Why establish a war cabinet, which we should also say includes the Israeli defense minister? What advantage does that have over the normal governing structure? Well, it was kind of part of the compromise struck between Netanyahu and Gantz, because initially the centrist party National Unity, headed by Gantz, said they will not enter a government with Netanyahu unless he got rid of his extremist um, ministers, you know, these far-right ministers belonging to two factions that have an alliance together called um, the Religious Zionist Party. So Netanyahu said that he didn't accept those terms. So then this compromise was struck where, you know, these ministers will stay on in the coalition, these far-right ministers, but there will be this kind of overarching wartime cabinet in which only Netanyahu, Gantz, and the defense minister, who is relatively moderate considering um, the others. So only these three will really have power. Netanyahu has spent years cultivating this image of himself as a strong protector of Israel. With this Hamas attack, how is that affecting his image? This happened under his watch. Right. And this is what's so striking is that until now, you know, we're a week out from the beginning of the war and he has taken no personal responsibility for what has happened. You did see in in the days following, you saw the the IDF chief of staff take responsibility. Um, You saw even the defense minister. You saw people starting to reckon with what has happened. And yet Netanyahu said nothing about his own role in this. And that's quite striking. Rationally, you would think that he is politically finished, that his career is over. Netanyahu, the way he's handled these last few days, you can see him sort of angling for the morning after and trying to reassess his coalition, trying to reassess his chances. Have there been demonstrations? Have there been protests against him? So there have been these nine months of ongoing protests before this attack happened against this judicial overhaul that Netanyahu's government had introduced. Now the protests, ever since last week when this attack began, they have been suspended. So you don't have these Saturday protests anymore. But what you do see is these little gatherings of relatives of those people who are being held hostage 
and relatives of, of you know, people who had lost their loved ones, there is clearly this sentiment against the government, against Netanyahu, and asking them to take responsibility. But what's interesting is that in the recent days, you have a new poll out for the first time since the war began, asking if elections were held today, who would you vote for? And for the first time in a long time, you see this flip where Gantz gets the most votes. He gets 48% of public support, and Netanyahu is down to 29%. Netanyahu is also on trial for corruption. Um, how has that affected Israelis' view of Netanyahu? In 2019, he was indicted on three charges of corruption, and they were kind of rolled into this one trial that began in 2020 and is still ongoing. And he is running the country in parallel with that. The consequences of that have been to really drive him further to the right. And we're seeing the consequences of that now, actually, because, um, you know, part of this attack by Hamas it has been the result of a shifting of resources away from protecting Israel proper, away from protecting these southern communities. And instead, the government policy has been to shift these um, battalions, these, um, these IDF battalions, to the West Bank to protect Jewish settlers there. And the settlers are part of Netanyahu's large base. Um, so this is all, you know, not to blame the attack on him, but just to say that, you know, that this is sort of the background of, of what has been happening in Israel, the changing of priorities, not only of the government, but effectively of, of the military too. That's Ruth Margalit, a contributing writer for the New York Times magazine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The Grammy Award-winning artist Leela Downs has sung about love, loss, identity, and immigration throughout her career. Reporter Beto Arcos says that Downs' latest album, La Sanchez, is her most personal yet. Last December, Leela Downs lost her life partner, American jazz saxophonist Paul Cohen, from a heart condition. Speaking emotionally, Downs says it's been difficult to overcome the grief but now she can talk about it. Yeah, it was tough. It was tough. Uh, I had to keep working because I knew that it would affect my voice if I didn't. I hadn't recorded the voice, and Paul had planned for us to do it in January, so I didn't cancel. And I would record, and then I would cry for a whole while. Ya sabes que no quiero verte Lo habíamos dejado claro tantas veces Downs and Cohen were together for almost 30 years. Cohen was her musical partner, producer, and manager. Downs says to prepare for this album, they invited musicians who play in both her U.S. and Mexico bass bands to go to Oaxaca to take part in a composition workshop. They spent two weeks with Downs and Cohen in their home studio, like a big family get-together, working on songs and eating delicious Oaxacan food. And we had a lot of tlayudas, mole, mezcal, <laughs> este vino. Y, y bueno, that's where we came up with several arrangements that continue on the album. Nunca me amaste como yo te amé a ti. 
She says some of the songs were written during the time they almost separated. A bunch of these songs are about agarras tus cosas y te vas. It's about separation <laughs> and heartbreak y desamor. When Cohen died last December, there were songs she still had to write to complete the album. One of them is called Toda la Noche, All Night. Which is really a song that's the continuation, right? After we, we lost him, it's a very um, therapeutic song for me. I listen to it. To, I have to cry, but then it's necessary for me to perform it as well. Eres un imán con la fuerza de la luna en octubre que me envuelve. And then La Curación is, is really a helpful song about losing someone and, um, and learning to live with their memory and not forgetting. Leo Soki is an accordionist, guitarist, and music director for Downs' Mexico City bass band. He has been working with her for 17 years. Soki says this is an album where Downs reflects on her life. This album, without a doubt, is the most personal of her career. In other albums, she's delving into music styles and various themes, but in this case, it's an album that talks about her story. That's why it's called La Sanchez. Sanchez is her mother's last name. I think that's the way she can tell her story, through this album. Down says the song Solita, Solita, Alone, Alone, is about her own empowerment and self-confidence. I have been a solita, solita kind of a person all my life, no? I think that as a woman, I've been pretty independent in my ideas, in my vision, and, and our music. Now that the album is out, Down says she gets to live with these songs for a couple years. She can't think of a better therapy for the soul. For NPR News, I'm Beto Arcos. Ya no me lastima. Ya buscarás con quién. Llévate tus cosas también. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. This is NPR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy, preparing students through innovation, entrepreneurship, and human-centered design. Open house October 19th, neiacademy.org. 
Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out, cambridgeculinary.com, and Emerson Colonial Theatre with Just For Us. Alex Edelman's one-man show returns to Boston, direct from Broadway, December 15th through 17th, emersoncolonialtheatre.com. On this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, actor John Goodman explains how he can play both lovable heroes and absolute lunatics. If you're cuddly and adorable, there's got to be a reason why, and it's usually filthy. <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for more secrets from the Actors Studio, plus conversations with journalists Bob Woodruff, Jenny Slate, and Stuart Copeland. That's this week's News Quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians are trying to evacuate northern Gaza before Israel launches an extensive ground attack. Hospitals in Gaza are operating but suffering. We hear from doctors treating the wounded on the front lines. And find out which movies made waves at the New York Film Festival. Plus, Welsh musician Wren's new album delves into his experience of living with chronic illness. I can either decide that this is the worst thing that could happen to me and I can start pitying myself, or I can go, okay, this has given me a perspective that most people don't have. It's Sunday, October 15th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Hundreds of thousands of displaced Palestinians are struggling to find food and shelter as an Israeli ground offensive looms over Gaza. The Israeli army says it's planning a significant ground operation in the Gaza Strip. But NPR's Peter Kenyon reports it's not clear when it might begin. Military officials said the Gaza operation will be a coordinated attack from the air, sea and land. In northern Gaza, there were scenes of streets jam-packed with vehicles carrying families and what few belongings they could take. A U.N. agency said access to water is a critical problem. Food and shelter shortages are also being reported. IDF spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht says reports that an IDF strike hit a convoy crowded with civilians was, quote, fake news. He said authorities had checked aerial footage and, quote, it wasn't us. He also said another safe route is being established in the Gaza Strip. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Egypt as part of a trip through Arab nations aimed at keeping the war between Israel and Hamas from spreading into a wider conflict. He arrived a short time ago and is to meet with Egypt's president. Humanitarian aid has been stalled in Egypt as operations at the Rafah border crossing to Gaza have been disrupted by Israeli bombardment on the Gaza side. Now to Louisiana, where Republican Jeff Landry will be the state's next governor. He won more than 50 percent of the vote in Saturday. 
Saturday's primary election. Molly Ryan with member station WRKF reports that could bring about significant change in the state, which has been led by a Democrat for the past eight years. Louisiana has an open primary, which means that normally the top two vote-getters would advance to a general election, but that's only if no candidate wins more than 50 percent of the vote in the primary. Landry surpassed that threshold, eliminating the need for a runoff, a rare feat in the state. The win is a major victory for Louisiana Republicans. Landry is a hardline Republican who had been endorsed by former President Donald Trump. His election could mean big changes for Louisiana, where Democrat John Bell Edwards has held the line on some conservative policies passed by the state's Republican-majority legislature. Landry will take office in January. For NPR News, I'm Molly Ryan in Baton Rouge. Voters head to the polls today in Poland, where the ruling right-wing Law and Justice Party is fighting to stay in power against a unified opposition, which aims to bring the country closer to the values of the European Union. NPR's Rob Schmitz is in Warsaw. The stakes in Poland's national election couldn't be higher. After eight years of rule by the Law and Justice Party, political observers say the health of the country's democracy is flailing. The latest opinion polls place Law and Justice slightly ahead of its main rival, the Civic Coalition, but neither of the frontrunners is likely to win enough seats in Parliament to form a government on its own. Voters are also going to the polls in Ecuador. They're choosing a new president in a runoff election marred by the assassination of an anti-corruption candidate. Seven suspects in the murder have also been killed. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Members of an Attleboro synagogue facing an emailed bomb threat yesterday still held Shabbat services yesterday. The Boston Globe reports that the neighboring Evangelical Covenant Church invited the congregants of Agudah Sahim to hold their service at the church. A state police bomb squad went to the synagogue and searched the building and its grounds for explosives and did not find any. Several synagogues in Rhode Island also received similar threats. The latest numbers from the U.S. Census Bureau show housing for New England seniors is falling short. The Bureau says only about 20 percent of New England homes have aging-ready features, such as step-free entryways and bedroom and bathroom on the entry level. That's about half the national average. Rob Dapis, the director of New Hampshire Housing Finance Authority, says more accessible units are needed for the region so seniors can downsize. There's a lot of large houses and a lot of seniors living in large houses. You know, they're sort of house rich, but uh, limited in terms of their options to move to a place that might be easier to maintain and easier to get around. Officials say in New Hampshire, about 24,000 more units are currently needed to meet overall housing need. An investigation is underway as five people are recovering from injuries after a haunted hayride mishap. Athol police say they were dispatched to Silver Lake Friday night for a report of a tractor losing control and reports of minor injuries. Five people were transported to Athol Hospital. Today is your last chance this season to enjoy a car-free Newberry Street in Boston. The Back Bay Street will be pedestrian only from 10 this morning until 8 tonight between Berkeley Street and Mass Ave. Today, East Boston will have its own open street celebration on Meridian and Bennington Streets. It is 51 degrees in Boston, partly sunny skies today. Highs in the low 60s, lows overnight in the upper 40s for tomorrow and Tuesday. A chance of some showers, highs both days, around 60 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Israel says it's preparing to invade Gaza as thousands of people there flee south. In Gaza, the health ministry says it will not evacuate hospitals and that doctors and nurses treating the wounded and dying have a moral position that, quote, obliges us to continue working. The World Health Organization says Israel's evacuation orders of hospitals in northern Gaza are, quote, a death sentence for the sick and injured. NPR's Ari Daniel has this difficult look at the scene facing health care workers. Blood was everywhere at Al-Shifa Hospital in northern Gaza on Friday. In the flow of blood, in every corner of the department, in the corridors, in the tables, anywhere you look. Mohammed Matar is the head of radiology at Al-Shifa. Over the week, he'd seen a river of patients with blast injuries, among other things. He and his team help who they can, but supplies are low, and he tells me drinking water has run out. We have tap water, which is not suitable for drinking here in Gaza, but no fresh water to drink. Many people have died, even before getting medical help. The hospital started to use a section of its ICU as a temporary morgue, in part because people felt it was too dangerous to bury their family members outside in the open. And Matar says they're not even considering evacuating the hospital because for some patients it would mean, in his words, sentencing them to execution. Saturday afternoon, on the second day of the Israeli evacuation order, Matar sent me voice recordings from the entrance to the emergency department. Hi, today is a relatively quiet day. Many of the staff here, they take the chance that uh, things are rather calm this morning, just to go home for one or two hours. To check on their loved ones. But then, Matar says, while at home, one of the doctors, a plastic surgeon, was killed in an airstrike along with his family. He says it made yesterday a very bad day. Meanwhile, in southern Gaza, as evacuees are streaming in from the north, things haven't let up. Jamal Abu Hilal is an orthopedic surgeon at the European Gaza Hospital. Doctors stay in the hospital day and night. They cannot go home. Abu Hilal has been sleeping on a mattress in his office. When I spoke with him last night on WhatsApp, he said sometimes a hundred patients have burst into the ER in the same moment. And when you receive 100 patients, it's, it's crazy thing to work with this enormous uh, number of patients, of injured patients. With no other choice, Abu Hilal and the other surgeons perform many of their operations right on the floor, amputations, abdominal surgery. He says they've treated numerous patients who were attacked while obeying the evacuation order on Friday. And his tools to repair the injuries are in short supply. It's with difficulty. We work with the minimum. For instance, to set a broken bone, he'll use two pins instead of the usual four, say, so he can help twice as many people. And a lot of those people, he and other doctors I've spoken with have told me, are kids. Children, 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 many, many, many children injured, many children injured, many children lost their family, father, mother, sisters, without families. This is extremely difficult. Abu Hilal says the streets of southern Gaza are choked with traffic and people, including those evacuating from the north. We, we Really, we are afraid. You, you just hear a rocket pumping. Uh, really, it's a very difficult situation. It's very difficult. We, we are not safe. We are not safe even in the hospital. 
amidst the violence that's tearing his patients apart. His only hope is peace. We are, we are people. We are respectable people. We are not animals. We are people like other peoples. We respect, we love. Hopefully that Western people, they believe that we are human. I spoke with one other physician last night. Um, do you have a minute to talk? Okay. Okay. His name is Mohanad Abul Kumbuz, and he trained as an orthopedic surgeon. A colleague of his told me he chose not to evacuate from northern Gaza, where his home is. But uh, may you please make it short, because here we are in uh, an area that is being targeted right now. Would it be better if I tried later? Okay. I called back later, but no one picked up. Then, hours after, he texted. It was a tough night. Ari Daniel. NPR News. As Israel readies its land, air, and sea invasion of Gaza, the country also continues to deal with clashes with Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. Hezbollah has backing from Iran. And for more on the relationship between Iran and Israel, we turn to Missouri University of Science and Technology's Mirazad Borojerdi. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So as a longtime watcher of the region and and the relationship between Israel and Iran, what is striking to you most about this moment when it comes to these two countries? Right. So uh, with the advent of the 1979 Iranian revolution, what we have seen uh, for the last 44 years really has been a a period of Cold War between Iran and Israel and, and no love lost between the two sides here. Um, the question right now that we are you know, encountering is um, this operation that we saw from uh, Hamas, the attack, to what extent was this done with the green light of Iran, which if it, if it is the case, it really signals a major escalation in terms of the conflict between the two sides. So that's really a big question. You know, U.S. intelligence shows that Iranian officials were caught off guard. Um, And there's a lot of talk in the U.S. about um, how Iran had $6 billion in assets unfrozen in September after a prisoner exchange with the U.S. What would Iran have to gain strategically by orchestrating an attack on Israel now? I think that's really the million-dollar question, right? Um, What is Iran going to gain? At the time where it is suffering from a really weak economy, at a time when it has tried a rapprochement with, you know, Saudi Arabia, at a time when it's trying to, uh, you know, release these, uh, you know, prisoners and um, gain the U.S. agreement to perhaps, you know, enter into a new round of nuclear negotiations. My sense is that um, even though we might have this sort of, you know, um, proxy relationship between Hamas and Iran, I'm not quite sure that the Hamas leadership uh, let the Iranians know on the secret of, you know, what, what this attack was, was all about. How does the current path to normalization of relations uh, with Arab states, uh, with Israel, particularly Saudi Arabia, play into the nature of the relationship between Israel and Iran? Right. So the Iranians were, of course, dead opposed to any type of normalization of relations, uh, you know, between countries like Saudi Arabia, 
uh, UAE, Bahrain, and others with with Israel, they see it as a you know betraying the Palestinian cause, and and certainly if we assume that the recent attack has basically put this uh, rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, on the back burner or even has you know killed it. Uh, this certainly appeals to Iran's uh, political agenda in the region. At the same time, I think they are raising also a valid point uh, directed at various U.S. administrations, and th that one is the following. They are saying, look, this Abrahamic peace between Israel and these set of Arab countries that are not bordering Israel is a way of bypassing the Palestinian issue. And I think, you know, if anything, the events of the last week has shown to us that it is not possible to ignore the plight of the Palestinian people, no matter how many other Arab countries come and make peace with Israel. Israel's immediate problem remains with what is happening in the West Bank and Gaza, and therefore that issue needs to be addressed. Lebanon and Syria are, are allies of Iran. Both countries um, have been the, the site of shadow conflicts between Iran and Israel. Um, uh, most recently, Syrian state media says Israel struck two of its airports last week, rendering them unusable. And Israel has also engaged in shelling with Lebanon. What do you make of the timing of these attacks? Yeah, I, I, my sense is that the, the Israelis are trying to basically warn uh, players such as uh, you know Hezbollah not to open a second front. Now the question, and I think this is really the, the key question, we know in terms of its military powers, Hezbollah is much more powerful than Hamas. So would the Iranians risk and you know ask Hezbollah to open a second front? Would the Hezbollah leadership themselves uh, decide to open a second front knowing that Lebanon currently is an extremely fragile country without really a, a true functioning government. It's, it's in many ways really a failed state. Same logic applies to the Assad regime in Syria. Despite the disparity that exists in terms of the military prowess between Israel and, and the others, the question really that worries everyone is, how would this uh, sit with this young uh, generation, this young demographic of many countries in the, uh, in, in the, in the region? Uh, are we going to be feeding the radicalism of a younger generation of uh, you know, Palestinians uh, if the attack on Gaza is carried out in a really heavy-handed uh, uh, fashion. Mirazad Borojerdi is the Vice Provost and Dean of College of Arts, Sciences and Education at Missouri University of Science and Technology. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. And coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, college students have been weighing in on the war news out of Israel and Gaza. You'll explore the role of college campuses in this moment. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. 
Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series with Grupo Corpo, Brazilian Contemporary Dance, at the Box Center Schubert Theater, October 28th and 29th, CelebritySeries.org. And McLean Hospital, for expert, research-based psychiatric care, turn to McLean, leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at McLeanHospital.org. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. With a potential ground invasion looming over Gaza, American citizens there have been unable to get out. In Israel, though, they're being advised of evacuation plans by sea. The State Department says a ship will depart Haifa tomorrow morning for U.S. nationals and their immediate family members. In Washington, after nearly two weeks of deadlock, House Republicans remain without a speaker. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan holds the party's nomination, but it's unclear if Republicans will unite behind him. Jordan's nomination could reach the floor for a vote this week. And actor Piper Laurie has died. She was 91. Laurie's manager says she died early yesterday at her home in Los Angeles. She was a three-time Oscar nominee. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. It's election day in Poland and possibly one of the most important elections since the fall of communism there in 1989. For the past eight years, the ruling law and justice party has stripped away the independence of the judiciary and the press. The European Union has frozen billions of dollars worth of funding for the member state as a result. NPR's Rob Schmitz joins us now from Warsaw. Hi, Rob. Morning, Aisha. So you've spent the morning at a polling station. Tell us who you've been talking to. Yeah, I first want to introduce you to Alexandra Rudnick. She's 75. She lives in downtown Warsaw. And she walked to her polling station with the help of a walker because she had a stroke recently that slowed her down. I get up uh, very early, but I uh, dress and uh, so long time, two hours. Two hours. Two hours? To, 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 so, I mean, getting out to yeah. vote must have been really important to her. Yeah, it's a very big deal for her. And, and when I spoke to her, she had just voted. And we sat down on a bench in front of the polling station, and she lit up a celebratory cigarette. <laughs> well, so who'd she vote for? So Alexandra voted for the Civic Coalition. It's a group of opposition parties under the leadership of former Prime Minister Donald Tusk. He wants to unseat the ruling Law and Justice Party uh, because he believes Poland is veering towards an authoritarian system under that party's governance. Tusk wants to guide Poland closer to the values of the European Union. 
Alexandra wants that too, and she says that growing up behind the Iron Curtain in Soviet-era Poland taught her what's important in this respect. And Aisha, she's saying here that older people in Poland appreciate the freedom and responsibility that comes with democracy and that the party in power now reminds her of the corruption and strong-arm rule in Soviet times. Nearly every voter that I spoke to at this polling station was voting the same way. So is that a sign that we might see a new party in charge of Poland after this election? Well, it's hard to say. You know, voters in Poland's biggest cities, like Warsaw, tend to support the civic coalition, while voters in rural Poland typically support law and justice. Uh, The latest polls actually show a slight lead for law and justice, and that's fueled a frenzied campaign schedule for the civic coalition's Donald Tusk, who is doing all he can to attract voters. I caught up with him at his final campaign event outside of Warsaw on Friday night. It was in a basketball gym that was just packed with supporters. And Aisha Tusk called this day the most important day in the history of Poland's democracy. And he called the Law and Justice Party a mafia organization that has robbed Poland of its international status. They're chanting thieves in Polish, and they're talking about Poland's ruling law and justice government. Uh, So how does law and justice respond to to that level of criticism? Well, they're pretty used to it. In the past couple of months, I've had a chance to sit down with law and justice parliament members and their voters, and it's clear they have a very different view from Tusk. They call the changes that they've made to the political system necessary ones, and their voters tell me that law and justice is the only party that has paid attention to rural Poland and has helped build infrastructure there and improve their lives. But I've also met former law and justice voters who will not vote for them again because they're scared of their corruption. The deputy foreign minister of Poland recently resigned after he was caught using Polish consulates to sell visas to migrants. And this for a party that has railed against the dangers of -of out-of-control migration. And it's a scandal like that that is not going to help law and justice today. That's Rob Schmitz in Warsaw. Rob, thank you so much. Thank you. Tensions over Israel's war with Hamas have extended all the way to college campuses in the U.S. There have been protests and strong statements, and at times, physical and verbal clashes. What are colleges supposed to do in these moments? To answer that question and tell us about what has been happening, we turn to NPR's Alyssa Nadwerney. Hi, Alyssa. Hi, Aisha. So walk us through the week. How has this played out at colleges? Let's first go to Harvard. So there, last weekend, a coalition of student groups issued a statement saying they, quote, hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible for the unfolding violence. Now, this statement was met with a lot of anger, pushback, and pressure. And since then, some of the student groups have apologized or retracted their endorsements. Across the country, there have been visuals and protests on campus. At Indiana University, the student newspaper reported clashes between pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian student groups. And even before the Hamas attack, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been one of the most contentious issues on campus. And and how are the administrations of these universities reacting to all of this turmoil? We've seen quite a range of responses. 
the University of Florida president, Ben Sass, a former Republican senator, came out and said, quote, we'll protect our Jewish students from violence. We've also seen other schools like Vanderbilt and University of Virginia issue multiple statements. You know, they just can't quite get it right. I talked with Ibu Patel about this. He's the president of Interfaith America, which works with campuses around conflict issues. I got a phone call from a college president this morning telling me that his campus would be hosting a peace vigil, and he was concerned about a disturbance at that peace vigil, possibly approaching violence. Patel told the campus leader and others, keep your message super clear and simple. Say, look, people are hurting. We care and support our students, and we will be a community of cooperation. We're not going to minimize the conflict. We are simply going to say that we are not going to allow the conflict to prevent us from cooperating on other things. That's the genius of American college campuses. Uh, what about schools that have remained quiet, which, I mean, that can feel like a statement in and of itself. That's right. Yeah. You know, surprisingly, some free speech advocates actually like this approach, though they acknowledge it will come with pushback. Here's Alex Mori. She's the director of campus rights advocacy at FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. The commentary is so divisive and there's really no right answer for universities. So what is so much better but unpopular at the moment for universities to do is to remove themselves from the debate entirely and instead say, we are not going to put our thumb on the scale as the university one way or another because that will chill the environment for free expression, for scholarly inquiry. Alyssa, I'm guessing that many students right now are feeling like they are in the middle of all of this. Yeah. Many students are frustrated, both about what student groups are saying and in some cases what universities aren't saying. Here's Caroline Yaffa. She's a senior at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I think it's the university's obligation to weigh in on this. Yaffa is Jewish, and she told NPR's Rachel Treisman that she has had moments this week where she doesn't feel safe on campus. She even changed her name on her Uber account from Yaffa to Smith. And what about students who have organized pro-Palestine protests or are part of student groups that support Palestine? Well, the National Organization of Students for Justice in Palestine told NPR that they expect universities to defend and protect a student's right to speak, assemble, and protest. Some students who are part of local chapters didn't want to talk on the record for fear of retaliation. But I talked with Radhika Signath, a senior staff attorney at Palestine Legal, an advocacy group that focuses on academic freedom. So many people have been coming to us as well who just have basic questions of saying, you know, can I say that I support Palestinian rights? Can I say that um, I stand against Israeli military occupation or for Palestinian freedom. Am I allowed to do this at my university? She said she's heard from professors that say their social media posts are being questioned. Students say they're facing harassment or doxing where their names and addresses get released online. And Sinath tells them, look, the First Amendment right in the United States protects speech, even if it's controversial. That's Alyssa Nadworny from NPR's education team. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Aisha. And for more of the latest news about the war in Israel and context you should know, go to npr.org slash updates. The New York Film Festival offers industry insiders and the public an early look at some big movies. 
The Fest concludes today, but NPR's arts editor, Rose Friedman, has been in and out of screenings for two weeks. Rose, it sounds like a tough job, but somebody has to do it. Exactly. Hi, Asia. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, So we're excited to hear about some of these movies. But first, you know, the actor strike is still ongoing. So how did that affect the festival? Well, there were some buzzy films for sure. You know, most couldn't have big panels with their casts. But I also noticed it did kind of draw everyone's attention to a lot of great smaller films. I got to see some really incredible things that aren't delayed and are going to be coming out soon. So what were some of the big movies? Well, a big movie that had its North American premiere at the festival was also kind of a local story. Maestro, starring Bradley Cooper and Carey Mulligan. It's based on the life of Leonard Bernstein. Oh, that's... uh... Twelve. No. <laughs> Six. No. Eight. Can you try? Could just call Maybe I should stop and think for a second. You should stop and think because I am sending it to you. Twenty. No. <laughs> Bernstein is a musical icon, but the movie is really focused on their relationship. Um, you know, it's a little bit melodramatic for me, but um, it's going to be big because it's also a Netflix movie. It'll be streaming by December. And then another one is Michael Mann's Ferrari, starring Adam Driver, but with equal billing Penelope Cruz as his wife. So both are kind of standard award season biopics. And then there was Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things with Emma Stone, which I have to say was my favorite of the buzzy movies. Oh, okay. So tell us more about that. (laughs) So Yorgos Lanthimos is one of those directors that people like to call a critical darling. He makes these very odd movies. You might remember one called The Favorite, which got about 10 Oscar nominations in 2019. In this one, Emma Stone plays a Victorian woman who, through a kind of contrived set of circumstances, winds up becoming a baby in a fully grown adult body. So here's a little bit of sound from the trailer. She's an experiment. Good evening. Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized. But she's progressing at an accelerated pace. Willem Dafoe plays her father figure slash sort of creator. Basically what happens is that as her mind develops, she discovers sex, and because she has no inhibitions and no social norms, she just has it with whoever she wants, whenever she wants. I am Bella Baxter, and there is a world to enjoy, circumnavigate. It's honestly, it's a joy to watch her just do exactly what she wants, even as it makes the men around her furious. You know, they can't control her. She's really the hero of the movie. It's a pretty radical movie, and I was a little skeptical because Yorgos Lanthimos had made this movie called The Lobster that was about relationships that I thought was really conventional and kind of reinforced straight middle-class coupledom. So this was just a nice surprise, and I think it's going to be a big Oscar contender when it comes out in December, certainly for Emma Stone. So what are some of the smaller movies um, that should be on our radar? There are so many movies I want to tell you about, especially foreign ones. I keep picking new favorites, but okay. One I really loved was called The Taste of Things, not a great title. This is a French movie with Juliette Binoche and Benoit Magimel. He plays the owner of an estate. He's this famous gourmet, and she's his cook and, of course, his lover. But it's really a movie about food. It's almost like watching a cookbook come to life. Here's a little of that trailer. Why I love this so much is the food on screen and how it's been created. And so even though it has these two very famous actors in it, the guy who designed the food for the production is this equally famous French chef in Paris. And it's just, it's extraordinary to see his kind of, you know, performance, quote unquote, on screen with the food here. Anything else before we let you go? 
Okay, I loved this Argentine movie called The Delinquents. The marketing materials are calling it a heist movie. It's not, well, it kind of is. It's about a bank robbery, but the robber is the bank's treasurer, and the amount that he steals is exactly equal to his salary for the next 25 years, which is how long he has until retirement. So it really ends up being a film about sort of the drudgery of work and finding a better and more fulfilling way to live through stealing, but you totally sympathize with him. <laughs> he's like, he's not trying to get rich. He's just trying to live a life that's not about work. So... I don't know. I think that may resonate at sort of a dark level with anyone reconsidering work-life balance. I guess, but if I was going to steal some money, I'd, I'd do more than my salary. <laughs> I a little more. <laughs> Come on. If I'm going to go for it, go for it. Oh, my goodness. Um, that's NPR Arts Editor Rose Friedman. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. One of the reasons thousands of people who work at hotels in Los Angeles have been striking is less about the workplaces themselves and more about how far they are from home. Housing costs in L.A. are high, so workers often have to live far from the hotels where they work. And as Danielle Cave reports, workers are asking hotels to step in. For 14 years, Brenda Mendoza has been a uniform attendant at the upscale JW Marriott Hotel in downtown LA. She's paid $25 an hour to handle staff uniforms and linen and all sorts of housekeeping tasks. These days, she gets up at 3 in the morning to make it to work on time. She has to drop off her husband and son at their jobs in the city, too. When I get out of work, it takes me about two hours, almost three hours to get home. The long pre-dawn commute, Mendoza says, takes a toll on her family's quality of life. It's also expensive. They spend a lot more on gas. It wasn't always like this. Mendoza was born and raised in Koreatown, just a 10-minute drive from the Marriott with its sweeping city views. The rent started increasing so much, I ended up having to move from Koreatown to Downey. And then um, last year, I ended up uh, moving to Apple Valley because my rent was almost $3,000 for a two-bedroom apartment. Downey was about 15 miles away. Apple Valley, where she now lives, is almost 100 miles northeast of the hotel. This increasingly long commute for Mendoza and many of her colleagues is a big reason why they've been on rolling strikes for the past three months. Rents are going high, properties are high. We're not able to even own a property here in LA. The union contract for some 15,000 workers, housekeepers, cooks, front desk agents, at about 60 hotels expired at the end of June. Since then, their union has been fighting for pay raises of more than $10 an hour. That would come out to a roughly 40% pay raise for Mendoza. But the union is also asking hotels for something unique and directly tied to housing, a hospitality workforce housing fund. The idea is for hotels to charge a 7% fee on all guest rooms, money that would help workers with their housing costs. In Los Angeles, if every hotel paid 7%, it would be $150 million a year. That actually could pay, we think, for two to 3,000 units of new construction. That's Kurt Peterson, co-president of the Unite Here Local 11 Union. He says the details of the fund still need to be worked out. It could be used for affordable housing construction or for low-interest loans, for instance. And the 7% fee could potentially replace existing fees on guests. But the hotels, he says, haven't been willing to even discuss the proposal. The only people in Los Angeles who don't want to talk about housing are the owners of the hotels. Everyone else recognizes it's a problem. 
The hotels feel it's not their responsibility to get housing for their employees. They don't think it should be part of any bargaining over compensation and benefits. A spokesperson for the Coalition of Hotels told NPR this extra tax on guests would be an unfair burden on only the city's unionized hotels when all of them face the same problem. But workers say the businesses that employ them can play a role in alleviating the housing crisis as public policy has failed to adequately address it. According to Zillow, the median rent in Los Angeles is nearly $3,000 a month. Given the high cost of housing and the crisis that many workers and families are facing, this will be something that will be more common. That's Thomas Kohan, a professor at MIT. He says Unite Here's approach is innovative and could address housing affordability in a creative way. Employers, too, have to see it as being in their interest for workers to live close to their jobs. But the LA hotels don't seem to be there quite yet. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Kay. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Israel continues to prepare for a ground invasion of Gaza in its war against Hamas after Hamas launched a deadly attack on Israel a week ago. The U.S. has arranged for U.S. nationals and their immediate family members in Israel to leave by ship from the Israeli port of Haifa tomorrow. In Gaza, doctors warned today that thousands of people could die as hospitals packed with wounded people run low on fuel and basic supplies. Meanwhile, water has run out at United Nations shelters across Gaza. The U.S. State Department said today that Secretary of State Antony Blinken will return to Israel tomorrow to consult with top officials on the latest developments. In the past week, Blinken has traveled to Israel and other Middle Eastern countries in an effort to prevent the war from provoking a broader regional conflict. It's 51 degrees in Boston, partly sunny today, with highs in the low 60s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Brown University's Masters in Healthcare Leadership, an accelerated one-year program transforming healthcare leaders. Professional.brown.edu. Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And Emerson Colonial Theater with Just For Us. Alex Edelman's one-man show returns to Boston direct from Broadway, December 15th through 17th. EmersonColonialTheater.com. I'm Scott Tong. As the conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza continues, the humanitarian crisis inside Gaza is worsening. Israeli leaders look for ways to secure their borders and increase security for their citizens. Perspectives and reporting from all sides, next time and here and now. Listening in tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from SEED. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a probiotic and prebiotic formulated with strains to support gut, skin, and heart health at seed.com public. From Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. 
This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Hundreds of hot air balloons filled the air above Albuquerque, New Mexico this weekend as part of the city's annual balloon fiesta. Member station KUNM's Megan Myskowski paid a visit to the balloon park Saturday and sends us this audio postcard. It's so early on this Saturday morning that it's still dark. Tens of thousands of people are setting up their lawn chairs and rolling out their blankets under the stars as the first balloons begin to inflate. There are many regulars who know the balloons, including college friends Ethan and Micah, who share a favorite. Oh, I've always been a fan of Arabelle. Uh, she's the uh, special shaped cow. Crews set up giant rainbow pattern balloons right in the crowd and launch with spectators just feet away. And among the people are zebras, like Christina Meadows. They help coordinate the ascent from the ground, and they're easy to pick out of a crowd. We're wearing black and white referee outfits so that we're visible to the pilots. The first round of balloons ascend before the sunrise. The rest, which include animal faces, company names, and familiar cartoons, start to inflate in neat rows through the crowd. You'd probably recognize this scene from decades of ads or the photos that deck the city's airport. But in person, it's incredible to see the balloons floating like bubbles into the clear morning sky. There are volunteers to help unroll the balloons and keep people from getting too close. Ben Palmer has done just that for over 20 years. During Fiesta, no one sleeps. Monday, I usually, if I have a a guest from another country, I'll be taking them to the airport. And uh, after that, I go home and I try not to wake up till Wednesday. Roxanne Tyner came from Texas to see the Fiesta and the Ring of Fire eclipse. She watches two Star Wars themed balloons inflate. And a few dozen people dressed as stormtroopers, Jawas, and other characters work the crowd. This is gonna be pretty incredible, along with Darth Vader and Yoda. This is exciting. And as the sun comes up, fighter jets fly over as the national anthem plays. Then the flame from every basket on the ground lights up at once. The balloons are off. In just minutes, they start to drift across the city, small as toys. For NPR News, I'm Megan Myskowski in Albuquerque. It's taken some people years to work on loving their bodies just the way they are. And the body positivity movement has made strides with many big brands showcasing models of all shapes and sizes. But with the rise of weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Wagovi, is being thin the only size allowed? And is that movement in jeopardy? Virginia Soul Smith is the author of Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture, and writes about diet culture, health, and anti-fat bias. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. People are really excited about these weight loss drugs, and it seems like everywhere people are talking about it. Is this person on it? Is that person on it? How can they get it? What do you think these drugs are doing to the conversations around body image and how we view our bodies? I think what we're seeing is the fact that as much progress as we've made on the question of fat rights and on understanding that body size is not under our control and is not something people should be discriminated against for, 
in our heart of hearts, a lot of us still are aware that fat people receive worse treatment than thin people in our culture, that it is easier to live in a thin body. And so there's this hope that these drugs offer this way to achieve that body that is socially acceptable. And if we can do it in this so-called easier way, then maybe we don't have to feel bad about the fact that we never wanted to be fat in the first place. Mm. And in that way, because these drugs exist, do you think or worry that people who remain what society would consider overweight or fat, are you worried that they will be judged because it's like, well, why don't you just get on these drugs? Why don't you just get on Ozempic? Yeah, absolutely. We're really in danger of creating like a two-class system, a hierarchy of body sizes, because we are so attached to the myth that weight is a choice, that it's just a matter of willpower, or now it's just a matter of taking a drug, which completely ignores the reality of the situation, even with these drugs in the mix. We're talking about really expensive medications. We're talking about, of course, every medication carries side effects. These are not going to be the right fit for everybody or the best health-promoting decision for everybody. And we're talking about drugs you have to stay on forever in order to sustain the weight loss. So if it costs $900 a month forever, who is that going to be accessible to? What is the difference between, because you're talking about fat rights and, and fat rights activism, and then you're talking about body positivity. So what is the difference between those two things? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because it's a really important distinction. So fat rights is a social justice movement that goes back to the 1960s. It's related to queer rights and feminism and disability rights. And it's really arguing that fat people are humans, that we have all the same rights everyone else does, that we deserve equal access to health care. We shouldn't be discriminated against in hiring practices. We have the same rights to access to public space, et cetera, et cetera. Body positivity is a conversation that's become extremely popular on social media, which is really more about how you personally feel about your body. And there's a lot of value in that, right? Like, it's super valuable to be able to feel good in your body, to like how you look in the mirror, to not be plagued by a ton of doubts and anxieties. That can be a really useful preventive strategy when we're thinking about how to buffer kids against the risks of eating disorders, for example. But... You can love your body all day long and still walk into a doctor's office and not be treated like a human being. When you talk about those misconceptions, obesity, you know, is classified as a disease by the medical community. And I believe they usually base that on, you know, your your body mass index, which is, I know, mm-hmm. controversial in and of itself. And you have said that there were good intentions behind this classification, but that maybe classifying obesity as a disease has not been actually helpful. And And why do you think that? They're using a system that doesn't accurately reflect our health to decide who is and isn't healthy. Now, the decision to make obesity a disease, an actual diagnostic category, I think was rooted in a belief that that might help reduce some of the stigma, that if we could convince people what we know to be true, that weight is not a choice, that it's not a matter of willpower— we could get people to treat fat people better because we'd be saying, look, it's not their fault they're fat. They have a disease. 
But the problem is, labeling something as a disease brings with it a huge amount of shame and stigma. And you can ask anybody in the disability rights community about this. When we pathologize bodies, we continue to other them and make them something that people feel like they need to be suspect of and judge. So ultimately, what do you wish you see when it comes to the conversation around body image and, and these weight loss drugs? I think we need to talk much more clearly about, as we've been saying, the way bias is driving the marketing of the drugs and the way doctors are talking to them, talking to patients about them. I would love to see doctors doing more training and unlearning around anti-fat bias so they could be really sure that when they're working with a patient, that bias is not part of the conversation, that they're really meeting the patient where they are and assessing what's going to benefit them, not coming in with this agenda. That's Virginia Soul Smith. She is the author of Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I wake up, I take a bunch of medication, I go to the doctors five days a week to get IVs. That's Ren Gill. He has a number of chronic health problems. As the rapper Ren, he delves into the agony of his struggles on a new album called Sick Boy. I lay broken on the kitchen floor. I clawed at the laminate, pain wandered my body, an uninvited guest, bones of a home where the devil could rest. I cursed the gods, cursed my messiah, cursed my maker, I cursed all of creation. There I lay, feeble and thin. Sick boy, sick boy, seven nights. Have you ever felt Rin says his pain can be a gift. It's a decision at the end of the day. Like, I can either decide that this is the worst thing that could happen to me and I can start pitying myself, or I can go, okay, this has given me a perspective that most people don't have, and I can take that perspective and I can alchemize it and I can turn that into music. I mean, after a while, you just adapt and you're like, well, if I'm going to keep being the victim of this story, my life's not going to be a happy story. So you've got to take it and you've got to change it into something that makes you feel like you're in control, like it helps you, it helps form the character that you are. You make many references to God in your music, and it seems like the illnesses you describe in your music aren't just medical, but maybe they're, they're spiritual. Is that, is that some of what you're, you're delving into? Yeah, I've, I've always had quite a turbulent relationship with my idea of God. Obviously, because if you're, if you're waking up and your body's in pain every day, there's a lot of questions, do you know what I mean? So you want answers, and sometimes they're not right in front of you, so you have to create them for yourself. So I, I love the mythology behind a lot of different religions. I love diving into the stories, because I think there's a lot of powerful meanings that we can extract from them. And um, it helps me try and piece together whatever the hell I think that this weird thing called existence is all about, you know? Is there a song on the album that you feel like exemplifies that to you? The track called Lost All Faith, which is actually a metaphor for losing faith in the medical industry, where you feel like you're not getting the answers or justification for something that's causing you a lot of suffering. I am a charming fella, I like drinking cans of Stella. See, I'm living for the weekend, back up to Salmonella. Cinderella story, racks to bitches, minifull propeller. I'm Nigella Lawson, stacking mozzarella. Only joking, I'm an introvert, alone inside my room because my insides hurt. I contemplate existence with consistency in my polo shirt. Then reassert my confidence with compliments I don't deserve. I calm my nerves by plotting the day that I might leave this earth. I mean, you know, listening to your flow on this album, like, kind of calls back to earlier eras in hip-hop. I mean, I did think of, of battle rap. Um, like, I, I hear um, that you are from a small village in Wales. So how did you find your way to rap music? <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's a strange place to start, isn't it? I don't know, from from a very early age, I just I just became obsessed with hip-hop and um 
I'm, I'm with drum and bass as well. And obviously growing up in a small village, there was nobody who was doing it. And I wanted to be a producer. So I'd sit at home making loads of beats and stuff. And um, I was like being like, all right, mate, do you rap? And like nobody rapped, so I could never find anyone to do it. So I just started doing it myself. And when I first started, I was pretty terrible. I'm not going to lie. And I just, I was just persistent. I got what you want. I got what you need. Old school kicks with a new school twist. Banging on my MP3. Who were some of the people that you loved to listen to? Back in those early days, man, it was, it was like a lot of old school stuff. Like I really liked all like uh, Tribe Called Quest, KRS-One, early Eminem stuff. I, I mean, one of the first albums that I bought was 2001 by Dr. Dre. And I just, I, it was the beats on that particularly. I loved the beats on that. And then, and then a lot of UK artists like Plan B, Dizzy Rascal, um, Getz and Skepta and stuff like that. It's just, yeah, all sorts of stuff. You really seem to value like just telling stories, the narratives. Let me tell you a story about a boy named Jimmy. One years old and his first words were mine, mine, give me. Two years old, he was walking. Three years old, walking quickly. Four years old, he was running round the pavements of his city. Five years old and his daddy told him, listen here, son, you got to learn to be a man. A man, he works for what he wants. Six years old. Who is Jimmy and, and, and what does he represent? Well, okay, the thing for me that I think movies do amazingly, right? Movies will create a whole character, make you emotionally invested in them, maybe more emotionally invested in those fictional characters than you are in characters in your real life. The movies like Scarface or the series like Breaking Bad, where, where you have this story of like innocence to corruption to the point where you almost emphasize with the protagonist, right? You almost feel like you're on that journey so you can see all the steps that happened that made that person end up into a life of corruption. And, and I hadn't seen that done in music very much. So for that song, I was like, you know what? I want to do the same thing. I want to create a character and I want to start at the very start, at the moment of innocence, and I want to tell his story from the moment so that everyone can see the little steps that brought him to a life of, of corruption, a life of misery. And um, yeah, it was a really exciting challenge. I, I thought I'd have a go at it. 23, a life of luxury, crystal and cocaine. 24, he made the Forbes list, the applaud in his name. 25, and his daddy told him, listen here, son, while you're sitting in that palace, that don't mean that you won. 26. What happens to him at the end of your song? You're going to have to listen to it to find out. I can't, I can't spoil the ending. <laughs> That'll be more like telling you what happens at the end of Breaking Bad. You know what? You don't want to yeah, say, because if I just tell okay. you the end, if I just give you the pudding <laughs> without having the main course, then it's going to ruin the meal. Do you know what I mean? So you got you got to listen to the end. Your album, you know, it really bears a political conscience that seems to criticize some of the darker aspects of, of human nature, like like greed and, and pride and envy. I'm, I'm talking to you as there are major wars going on, raging right now. What do you hope people around the world will take from your music at this moment? What I would hope is to just inspire a point of mediation because I think there's so much hyperpolarization in the world at the moment. There's so many people in echo chambers with their hands over their ears shouting at each other and not listening to each other. And all that does is push us further apart. And it doesn't matter what the viewpoint is on either the left or the right or, or what even the debate topic is. The most insidious thing is that that division is happening in the first place and we're not able to sit down, have a conversation that doesn't end up in even more division because topics that we're arguing about, really at the end of the day, they're not going to matter if we become so divided that we can't even agree on how to progress as a species. The human being with the most incredible species and we've got so much this potential and, and I think sometimes we waste that potential when we don't try and figure things out and we bicker over things 
what I'd really hope to inspire is just more open, compassionate and empathetic dialogue because I think the world's thirsty for it, man. It's a simple situation with an obvious equation You and me collaborating for the night that's Welsh musician Ren talking about his new album, Sick Boy. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Came in uninvited, two planets collided. I don't really like it, being on my own. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Little Brown Books for Young Readers, publisher of Zillit and other important rhymes, written by Bob Odenkirk and illustrated by his daughter, Erin Odenkirk, a book of poems and nonsense for all ages. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station, This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Israel continues to prepare for a ground invasion of Gaza. Follow this developing story today here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. And Celebrity Series with Grupo Corpo, Brazilian contemporary dance at the Box Center Schubert Theater, October 28th and 29th, celebrityseries.org. In upstate New York, Jewish parents try to figure out how to talk to their kids about the bloodshed in Israel and Gaza. What are they going to do with all those kidnapped people? Are they going to murder them, torture them, or let them free? Those are scary questions. Explaining the unspeakable, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.